Hey, Scott. It's not, not official, but we can officially tease an upcoming surf trip that we are going on together and that we are going to invite listeners on with one waterwaystravel.com. Yeah, Waterways Travel. Look, David and I are going to be surfing side by side. <laughs> are you saying you're going to be burning me? No, no, not at all. Are you kidding me? Here's the funniest thing about what you just said, though, is that I was literally looking at um, the waves in El Salvador this morning, and I was going, I was looking for a foil wave. I was like, okay, that you're the worst. <laughs> I was like, that little thing over there that nobody's on, I could probably be foiling. <laughs> Actually, clears you out of the lineup. I'm totally okay with this. Uh, look, um, waterways travel, they're the experts. When I think of waterways, I think of expertise, and that's what they are. They're the experts in the space for all of your surf travel needs, whether it's El Salvador or South Africa or any of the spots in between, perhaps Morocco. Who knows where you want to go? Uh, waterways travel is a one-stop shop. Absolutely. And um, we organized dates. We got the location locked in. We're finalizing price and a couple of other details, but we're going to take over a resort, basically. We're going to um, make all of the rooms available to our podcast listeners. We've talked about doing this for years. And so listeners, once we announce the official kind of kickoff, we'll have an email address that you can email to um, to secure your space. And it'll just be all spit listeners at one resort in El Salvador with a wave out front and a bunch of other waves accessible nearby by boat. Cool. That's going to be so, fun. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. So that's going to be good stuff. Yeah. We'll have more info on that as the uh, days tick by. I'd say, we, yeah, within the next two weeks, I think. But it'll be April 2024. So if you're interested, start mapping that out for yourselves. And then we're also, while we're in El Salvador, we're going to be bringing our Driftline board shorts as well, the Drifties. Heck to the yes. I love my Drifties. David and I have spoken at length about how comfortable they are how fashionable they are. They come with a half a millimeter of a wetsuit lining, which is really the game changer. And um, I recall way back in the 80s when OP had those those like nylon kind of wetsuit tights. Um, they weren't as good looking as the drift lines. Like they did, they had function, but they were, you look like you were going to go on a road bike ride somewhere like, you know, Lance Armstrong or something. They didn't have a board short on the outside, though, did they? No. No, it was just no. the tights. Yeah. You were wearing tights. Like, you'd yeah, see photos of, like, shorts. Gary Elkerton in his tights and Tom Kern in his tights. My When I was first getting into surfing, I was in element, or, uh, middle school, probably, like, eighth grade. And my family had a place in Baja that we would go to, like, every month. And so one of my best friends in eighth grade came with us, and he was getting into surfing, too. And he showed up with those. He had those wetsuit shorts and a wetsuit top with short sleeves so it's basically a spring suit but it's separated in the middle and as you know baja is cold year round and i was like you know making fun of him but when you're young and you're starting and that's all you got that's what you wear and the water would constantly fill up in the belly portion of the wetsuit top <laughs> so we'd get this little pot belly of water that would jiggle oh, and that's what i think about whenever i think of those wetsuit shorts duly noted comedy pure comedy for an yeah. eighth grade david okay but yeah at any rate putting the uh board short on the outside of that wetsuit short makes all the difference in the world in terms of fashion so go to driftline.co our promo code is the word spit you save 15 percent. you get compression no chafe warmth everything you need driftline.co see some movement at the takeoff zone it's kelly slater grabbing rail a clean entry this thing holding open it spits uh, when it spit me i thought it was going to spit me off my board comes out with the spit spits him out comes out after the spit gets spat out of another good looking wave here spit 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 we're just spitballing right yeah i got yeah guy yeah guy david it is Tuesday, August 22nd, and it is uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, David, and um, we've got a lot of news to distill through. We had, of course, Hurricane Tropical Storm Hillary come through Southern California, 
and um, the situation in Lahaina and Maui is ongoing. And of course, the WSL is uh, as the final five, and both the men's and the women's are locked in for an event at Trestles in a couple three weeks or so. So, a lot to distill here. I'm going to start with an update on Maui because I actually spent an hour on the phone with Nick Timponi yesterday. Yeah. And we, we developed a little idea because, you know, you and I were talking on air last week about where you give money to. And we both kind of agreed that we would love to give money cash to families in need. It's also great to give to larger entities that can then distribute on a larger scale. But in the real, reality, we would love to just give cash. That would feel more direct and more impactful. And so what Nick Timponi um, and his dad decided that they were going to do is they have a board that they've built, beautiful triple stringer, blue tint kind of uh, mini longboard, eight feet or so, I think. They're going to give it away on the final day of August. And you can basically buy um, an entry to win that board. And I we don't know what the number is. I'm not sure if he said they're $10 per entry or $100 per entry. But, you know, if you give more than that, you will get more entries, essentially. And you can donate. They're going to set up a specific Venmo for this giveaway. And you can donate directly there on Venmo. 100% of the donations will go to families. What I suggested that he do between now and Thursday when we launch the thing is to identify the families. Obviously, they live on Maui. Um, the Timponis live in Haiku, which is the opposite side of Lahaina. So it's uh, wasn't necessarily directly, it wasn't affected by the fires. And by the way, it wasn't just Lahaina that was affected by the fires. There were a lot of fires going on. But after a couple of days, the news kind of just kept mentioning Lahaina because they were totally decimated. But my point is, uh, he's on the ground in Maui. They know families who are in need. And he said there was at least 20 first responders who also lost their homes while they were fighting the fires. So we might go that route. I'm leaving it up to them. But ultimately, they will identify approximately 20 families in need. We will put out a call for donations to go directly to this Venmo. And then from that Venmo, they will disperse the money equally amongst those 20 families. Just divide it by 20. Give the money cash directly in hand immediately. And um, so that we're going to kick that off on Thursday. We're going to announce it on Instagram in a collaborative post between Timponi Hawaii and Surf Splendor. So wait for that if you're interested to give and feel confident knowing that the money's going directly to the families. Cool, man. That sounds good. And, um, and I, I guess on a similar note, I gave some money to Bob Ole Olson, who lost everything in the Lahaina section of the fire, a legendary surfboard shaper. And um, I've given some money to some other folks, too. And if you can... Um, you know, if you have the means, um, please give, cause this thing is just horrific. Like it's just, I don't even think we can feel the depth of the horror, you know, like, like oh, no. it's, it's, you know, I'm trying to empathize, but it's like such next level stuff that unless you're a part of it, you know, unless you've lost a child, it's hard for you to really understand the depth of the the tragedy and the sadness on a d another note, you know, concerning the property there, it's, there's some concern that we're hearing that all of this land in Lahaina might find its way into developers hands and that Lahaina will not be the same sleepy little sort of Harbor town, tourist destination town. You know, Lahaina sort of had like a Haleiwa kind of vibe. Like it was just, you know, a town that was, built up around industry and then kind of slowly transformed into a, a semi-tourist destination. But in that slow transformation, it didn't lose any of its sort of groovy, sleepy sort of early days appeal as far as like the way it was built out, the design and everything. Um, and the governor is suggesting perhaps that the government buy all of the land so that it is safe from developers and then they would resell it. The government would resell it to the original property owners, which really sounds weird. Like that just sounds Super so suspect. weird. Um, some are saying, look, that's exactly how this whole thing will get whitewashed and put into the hands of developers because 
As you know, the government coffers grow through a tax base increase and an entire town rebuilt with new structures and revalued at current real estate values helps the government tax base jump significantly. And um, one of the things to deal with here is property taxes. Like I sense that, you know, like what they should probably probably do is is put a hold on all property, basically waive property taxes until the homes yeah. are rebuilt and then assess the property values um, at the old rate, you know, like what the values were worth, you know, three months ago or whatever they were paying three months ago. Now, I don't understand. I'm not an expert in taxes and certainly not an expert in property taxes in Hawaii. But from what I understand, it's different than in California, where every time your home is your home gets reassessed every year or every couple of years. So your property taxes just keep going up as right. values go. Now, if the value goes down, I think the taxes go down. But as we all know, there's no values going down anywhere near and probably never. And so what eventually happens is that people simply can't afford to live in the homes that they've been in their families for four, five, six generations or longer. You know, homes that they maybe purchased for 5,000 bucks in 1930 or whatever, you know, are now worth 3 million and their property taxes are more than they make in a year or two years, you know? And that's really what started that exact scenario is what started the Howard um, the um, the property thirteen, you know Howard Jarvis deal here in California, where we we locked in property taxes. It can't just go up because you're gonna everybody's gonna get forced out. So anyway, that's one of the things. Now, from a design standpoint, it's certainly a quagmire, isn't it? Like, yeah. an entire community has to be rebuilt. One developer could, for instance, win the contract. And he goes in there and he rebuilds all of the homes in Lahaina um, in a way that's agreed upon by all the stakeholders, the, the, the landowners. Everybody agrees that, look, let's build Lahaina back in an authentic Hawaiian cultural design aesthetic. And, and, and that's one way that it could go, right, where you just kind of have, you know, maybe seven or eight designs that you can choose from. And it all looks good and groovy and super, like, proper, or the landowners just do onesie twosie designs and you just pick your developer, your local developer guy, and they just build houses. And those two have to be set up within a certain design aesthetic. You know, here in California, we have planning commissions and design review boards that make sure that there's not anything too garish. Um, so, anyway, you know, I, I don't know which way they're going to go, but the concern is, of course, that the original property owners are going to be out and that. Two, that it, if it gets rebuilt by, you know, if it gets rebuilt into some like really gross Disneyland vibe, it's going to be a bummer, you know? Yeah. Totally. And so there's a lot going on. And that's just yeah. looking way down the line. Of course, there's still a lot of misery and people missing, 850 people missing still. And there's just, it's horrific. It totally is. And that's why when Nick and I were talking about the best way to do this donation or the collection of donations and giveaway was... Um, you just need cash to get through on the day to day to get to those decisions. You know, like even if you have insurance for the house, that'll help rebuild the house, but that's way down the road. And what do you do in the meantime? Right. Do you have a hotel to stay in? Maybe you have to be off Island with a family. There's a family maybe who lives on Oahu. So you're going to go stay with them. You know, maybe you've got, maybe you just can put the money towards a sprinter van that you can live in with a family for a few months while you get through whatever the case is cash solves the problem immediately or temporarily anyways. So that's kind of the objective for us. But you mentioned um, giving money to Bob Olson. Bob Olson is eight, I think he's 93 years old. He lost his surfboard factory and his house. Thankfully, he and his wife were able to get away from the fire, uh, but they lost everything essentially. And there's also a couple of other builders that are on that side of the island. Um, Mark Anderson lost his shop and his house. Dwayne Ignacio, he had just secured a shaping bay, I think next to Bob Olson's. He lost that. Uh, young Josh Weisfeld, his Instagram handle is jaw, J-A-W. Um, he lost his shaping bay or his surfboard factory, and I think maybe his house too, but that's unconfirmed. And then a local legend, kind of smaller builder guy, Matt Smith, also lost everything. 
So I would encourage, I mean, we got to figure out a way to support the board builders too and help them get back up on their feet. And um, so that may be something that we can discuss off air and then figure out. Yeah, because, yeah I love I mean, that idea. How do we, I mean, at some point they're going to need whatever it is they need, tools for building surfboards, you know, just the basics. You know, they're going to need racks. They're going to need perhaps planers, perhaps sanding stuff, you know, just some stuff, you know. Totally. And um, and blanks. And, bo- <laughs> and, and board orders. So maybe – and Fiberglass Hawaii is their distributor on island on Maui. And so maybe we kind of, you know, collaborate with them and figure out a way to help resupply materials – and then also on the consumer side, order boards from those guys, keep them, get them back in business. Yeah, there's got to be a way that the boardroom show can do something on site during our event to Boom. raise money I for those that. surfboard shapers. Um, and so let's figure that out. Um, maybe we have a board raffle type of thing, and it's specifically geared towards, I don't know, we should wrap, with it, wrap out. Maybe it is geared towards getting them materials to but it feels like getting materials to build boards is a ways off or maybe they're hungry to start working you know sometimes that's the best thing is like let's start working and of course they got to build build a factory what what i heard was that dave got who has a glassing facility in uh haiku also has a shaping bay there and i guess he's offered to loan that out to those guys to help them get back on their feet in the interim so they presumably if that's true do have somewhere to work uh temporarily and so yeah supplies would be the solve for us you know funding the supplies and directing board orders and so i guess what we would need to do is determine what is needed by whom you know yeah yeah and um and and move from there so i agree with you the boardroom show might be the right platform to do it so if we can organize something there yeah for sure okay let's put it together yeah, some sort of board raffle thing um, makes tons of sense. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's weird. One of the things that I think is missing from this is a sense of understanding regarding visitors and tourists on Maui. You know, there's some stuff on Instagram where they're showing all of these rental cars just piling up. There's nobody there, you know. Right. And, um, and there's a lot of voices on Maui that – respectful voices voices that you're like okay that's what he says and i'm not gonna that are saying don't go there you know like jason momoa being the most vocal but it seems like there's not a unified um mission or or statement there's not like a unified this is what you should do if you're thinking about going to maui like is it don't go there is it i think what it is is you should go there but do not go to Lahaina. Don't go looky looing around where they're trying to deal with this thing. Go over. You can go over to the you know Hana side or whatever. You know what I mean. But don't be. So anyway, it, and even I'm not sure what the message is. And regardless of what the message is, the message needs to come from somebody, and they all need to be on the same page because I'm seeing mixed messaging about whether to go there or not. There's locals Whoa. on Instagram that are like, "Do not come here. You're." You're not welcome here. And then there's others that are like, please come, but only go to this. You know what I mean? And so they don't seem to have their uh, a unified voice yet. No, I don't think there is a unified voice. I think that, and first of all, I think that it's shifted over weeks because the first couple of weeks, the, mes- the message was probably unified in don't come. Don't clog up channels for resources to come through in terms of, uh, you know, actual help, food and water and that sort of thing, medication. But the island does exist because of tourism or the island's economy is 80% reliant on tourism. So after you get through that first wave of help where people can kind of get what they need for the interim, then it shifts to, we do need some tourism. We can't get bombarded by it, but we do need some. So I think we're in that transition right now of where people are identifying that and um, accepting it and starting to message the new message, you know? Well, Here's my question to you is that I'm, I'm hearing some stuff. I'm seeing some stuff on Instagram, and maybe it's a vocal minority. I don't know. But they're saying, hey, maybe now's the time not to um, rebuild tourism as our, the, you know, how this island 
prospers. Maybe there's a way now, like this is a way of, this is a time to change things from an industry standpoint. And so, okay, that's not a bad idea. Perhaps let's, let's investigate that. What does that look like? And what industry is there? Is it too late? Is the tourist industry so embedded that to change it now would be like next level, um, uh, you know, restructuring? Like what industry, like, is it going to become a semiconductor, you know, mecca? You know, like, yeah. is it is it going to be like, is it going to go back to farming? Like, is that really what's going to happen to sustain the economy there? Or is it like, help me out, help me understand what you think, what industry would be the industry or industries, plural. I think that the need always starts, the demand starts, and then they meet the need. And so I think tourism was the demand. People wanted to be tour, you know, wanted to go to the island. And so then the industry, the tourist industry develops around that. So I don't think that there's any way to, you know, to uh, deflect the tourist need, like the tourist desire to come spend time on Maui. You can build semiconductors in a lot of other places in the world, but there's not a lot of those places that people want to be tourists at, you know, so the tourists get priority essentially. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm just saying that's some of the stuff I'm reading and, and I just asked, I just found myself asking myself, what is this industry that, that will sustain the Island? That's not tourism, you know, and, and I'm not saying that there is an opportunity for other stuff. I think there is, I, I don't know what it is, but I think you're right. I think in a, um, sort of consumerist capitalist system, we look to the markets to dictate what makes sense. And there's a market for people to come visit. Yeah, know? exactly. And no matter what's being built there or what industry is happening, there's people that are going to want to come be tourists too. Exactly. So, well, Hurricane Hillary is the big news here in Southern California. Was it a, was it a hurricane officially, Scott? I mean, no, I, it was kind of a, a, I mean, it was a depressing tropical storm. Is it? Although, I will say this, I don't mean to make light of it because I know a lot of people suffered. Here where I live, it was minor. I know that in the desert communities and up in Los Angeles, all of Los Angeles got really smacked. And so uh, well, I should probably... But what you're referring to, what you, the reason why you're making light is there was so much hype leading up to it. Like there's a lot of tragic news stories that don't get any attention at all. This was one that was so hyped in advance, we were anticipating major catastrophe for the infrastructure and everything. And then ultimately what made you know landfall was uh, it only lived up to the hype in 5% of the location that it hit. And 95% of it, including where you and I were, was basically a day of rain and honestly, not even any wind around here. It was offshore wind. <laughs> I know. I know it was pretty in some regard, it almost seemed like um, because there was a lack of warning for what happened in Maui, it was almost like the people in charge here were like, let's overhype the possibility of disaster so that we can cover our ass, which isn't, by the way, a bad idea. You don't you can't really be be you know shamed for overhyping a disaster, although if you cry wolf enough times, it, it could you know people yeah. just stop listening. Right. But it was officially the first. I believe it was the first tropical hurricane that made landfall in Southern California. Tropical I saw storm. F- tropical storm. Tropical storm. I saw since 1939, and then yeah. I saw somewhere else that it's the first ever. Mm. But yeah, yeah. So that's unusual to get a tropical storm, but um, which to us amounted to we're outside in shorts while it's pouring rain. You know, basically warm weather, warm rain. Uh, Austin had a blast playing outside in it. So, and the waves, though, is what you and I should be discussing. How are the waves in San Diego? The waves were not non-eventful. Um, it, it was yeah. just too steep. There was occasionally, you know, multi-wave sets of like four, five, six, seven waves at a time that would march in at like eight-second interval and um, be real long. Um, but, uh, you know, unless you were at San Onofre, which is in San Diego County. By the way, Lower Trestles is in San Diego County, for those of you who don't know. Um, unless you were up there, you didn't really see anything down here. Like San Diego proper from, say, Imperial Beach up to uh, 
up to Carlsbad, maybe Encinitas, you didn't see a whole lot. You started to see some waves in Oceanside up into San Onofre, but it was nothing like what you guys were getting in Orange County, which was pretty insane, Newport. Yeah, but even then, definitely didn't live up to the hype. And also, um, only a few spots that were actually going, you know. Seal Beach, and, Seal Beach looked like there was some waves, right? The harbor there. Yeah. Crowded. That's en- enough crowded. said about that. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. We'll just not talk about I looked on the Surfline cam for Seal Beach and there was like 45 dudes. Oh, yeah. And they were all just sitting there grumpy. I was like, oh my God, I would never. Well, that's that. so because it was so much hype with the swell with the swell and the hurricane, and because there was only a couple of spots that were actually decent, because you just had a lot of walled sets essentially at the other spots. So yeah, there's swell and there's water, you know, there's energy in the water. You're just not gonna find a corner and you're gonna spend a ton of time paddling and it's raining the whole time. So you wanna you really had to pick and choose. And the few spots that were good are the few spots that actually typically don't break. So, you know, everybody knows which spots those are. So everybody gravitates there. And then there's 300 people in the lineup fighting for those few, you know, corners, essentially. So it was one of those things where it's just too much hype, not enough, uh, not enough locations to actually surf. But there's a couple of waves that were ridden that were, of course, you, you see a photo of them. You're like, oh, my God, that was the day of days. But really, it was hard to find. Yeah. It was the whole th- Tropical Storm Hillary thing was just sort of, you know, overhyped, not enough mojo. Yeah. I, I do want to read to you something, though, because um, this is the first time I've ever seen this on Instagram. Do you remember when I read you Troy Eckert's uh, post about getting that barrel down in Baja, that like life changing wave of his life when he was 50 years old? Yeah. Well, Surfline posted a clip um, somewhere in Orange County, doesn't need to be named, <laughs> um, of they didn't identify the surfers, but it was basically somebody on a sick overhead barreling left, dropping in, great positioning, surfer looked like he knew what he was doing, drops in, could have set up for a sick long tube. But then somebody else drops in on the shoulder and gets a lesser tube all the way down the line and gets blown out of the thing. And um, I was like, man, somebody got burned. But, you know, it's probably a loke that just went just like, hey, this is my wave. I'm going or I've been sitting here longer or you backpedal me. I didn't know what the situation was. It just the surfer who uh, rode the wave successfully, the surfer who burned the other guy, I thought he knows what he's doing as well. He clearly you know, this was intentional for a reason. Probably. I don't know. Well, then the next day I see Troy Eckert get on Instagram, post a different angle of it. And he says, but the video is the fourth slide. The first three slides are text. And Troy says, does anyone know who I unintentionally dropped in on yesterday? Uh, DM me so I can personally apologize. He was clearly in the right spot and didn't, and I didn't see or hear anything. I felt it was important for me anyways to acknowledge this, even though it was not intentional. Yes, I grew up in Newport and yes, I've heard you're from Newport, so it's all good, but I wanted to own it regardlessly. Yesterday was busy to say the least and with all the hype and everyone out, including quote locals and people from all over. Uh, And it's all okay unless we choose to complain about it. Why paddle out in the first place if you're not going to suffer through it? It is what it is. The people that are supposed to get waves will, and that's why Tyler Gunter, Bobby Oakvist, Spencer Purdy got some of the best waves of the day yesterday. Respect will give way to the forces of nature, just like in the wild. The fact that no one, the fact is, no one is a local. We are all visitors on this earth, and before we know it, we're all gone. So why not enjoy it all? Again, apologies to this guy, and hopefully this will allow us to look at surfing a little differently and be and how blessed we are to be able to enjoy its fruits. I'm personally feeling the teachings from this experience. And then he posted the video of him burning the dude. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love, I don't know Troy, but I'm a big fan of his. And uh, that's good that he owned it, right? That's, a, it takes a, a mature human being. A hundred percent. And I mean, to put up your hand and be like, Hey, that clip that Surfline posted yesterday, that got, you know, hundreds of thousands of views. I'm the guy I'm the culprit. Like, but let's shift 
the entire paradigm of how we look at burning. <laughs> and I'll just not only own it, but put out a public apology. This happens. It was chaotic. It was unintentional. I am sorry, but I'm learning from the experience. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think we look to our elders. Uh, we traditionally have looked to our elders for advice on how to live uh, in a way that is beneficial for society and helps society grow. And for a lot of time, I think that we can't rely on our elders for that kind of insight. And so I appreciate Troy not even trying to be an elder statesman, not even trying to force his thing upon us, but just living by example. You know, honestly, one of the best surfers in the lineup, no matter where he is, but acts with a humility of somebody who's just still learning. And so I really appreciate him uh, and what he's yeah. been doing in the last couple of years. Troy, he's like the Wayne Dyer of totally. surfing. I'm a big fan. Good for him. By oh. the way, the, I will say this. The foiling was really good down here. <laughs> Super fun. You know, you're like full classy. Convert, when, yeah. Dude, when we first started the thing, you're like, I just want to have something to do when I'm not surfing. Now it's becoming the thing that you do instead of surfing. Oh, no, it is. It's It's crazy. Like, for years and years and years, you and I would talk about, oh, we're just surfing. It'd be like, oh, yeah, I just drove down the street to my spot, local spot, pulled my longboard out, and paddled out with 30 dudes. And now I'm, like, driving places. <laughs> I'm literally getting in my car and driving to places where it's ideal for foiling based on tide or whatever, you know. And uh, I'm, f I'm fully bitten the hook. It's so much fun. It's ridiculous. Well, and it's also because you're so actively engaged in every process, every part of the experience. Surfing by rote, like you were talking about, put the longboard, go to the spot, get out. Maybe I get some waves. Whatever I get, I just automatically know how to do what I'm doing. You don't have to really think about it. And so foiling, you're just actively engaged, you know? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a learner. I'm a beginner. And uh, yeah. it's, it's cool, man. I'm, and you know what? I mean, I've surfed three foot Cardiff for 37 years or whatever it is like I did it I've done it and I will continue to do it but this is a whole new avenue of fun it's it's ridiculously fun and it's ridiculously fast and the speed is incredible and the, the potential for um, a new th a new ocean activity is exciting super yeah. exciting good good on you yeah well what about Chopu and finals day. Oh, my God. The the Yago Dora Kelly Slater heat was exciting. I hope you got to see that live. That was pretty fun. And I did. I, yeah. I was bummed. I mean, I'm stoked for Yago, but I was really hoping for Kelly. And Kelly surfed a great heat, you know. Um, the only thing he did is he took the wrong wave at the end. He should have maybe given that one up to Yago and taken it. You know, it's just one of those things you just don't know. And then Yago got the score at the end. Yeah. It was pretty – it was pretty interesting, right? Yago, you never really see Yago that animated. At least I haven't. And he was quite animated, quite into it, which was cool. And um, that was that was the heat of the, one of the heats of the event, I thought. And Although the, the final was next level, the final was through the roof in a yeah. really good way. Yeah, and the part of the reason Yago was so animated was he had potential to make the final five at that point still. So that's what he was. Uh, aiming for which would have been incredible because honestly i feel like yago actually has a shot at lowers yeah yeah i agree and look the WSL format i mean it went to the last heat of the year to determine the final spot in the final five and i, I think it did that in the women's too um and so you know i ask you david exciting yes or no totally i loved the final i um you know I was looking at Chopu footage throughout the event or it popped up for me of when it's actually good. And so it was easy to say this event is good this season, like having barreling waves, having people actually get spit out of reef past waves is feels amazing compared to the rest of the year, but it still falls short for what you would want to see from Chopu. Obviously it wasn't eight to 10 foot Chopu, you know? Yeah. Um, it was for the, um, the trials. Exactly. But but that all that being said, the final was undeniable. And it was really two completely capable surfers yeah. battling it out. They're equally adept at that wave. You had Jack Robinson and Gabe Medina, and they were they had implemented two different strategies. And I wasn't sure whose strategy was gonna play out. 
Gabe's strategy was stay busy, put a ton of scores on the board. You know, if I get 10 waves, I know I'll at least get two eights out there. And so I'm just going to do that. And Jack is going to wait out the back and wait for the two bombs. And get, and even if he gets them, Gabe's strategy might put enough pressure on Jack to where he might falter on those two waves. And we could see that playing out. And I thought that the commentators were doing Jack a little bit of a disservice by saying, Gabe's got this thing sewn up. There's 20 minutes left, you know, in a 40 minute final. And they're just singing Gabe's praises. Like he looks unstoppable. I mean, Jack, what's Jack going to do? And I'm like, Jack's clearly got a strategy. He's sitting out the back waiting for a second wave. When he gets it, he's going to actually execute on it. So hold your role commentators. And ultimately that was exactly what happened. You know, he got got the wave, I think with four minutes left or something like that, got the score he needed. And then Gabe's back was against the wall waiting for the bomb. So it yeah, was exciting. It was, it was very exciting. It was quite a show of professional athleticism uh, from totally. a mental standpoint to have the, the fortitude to just, you know, what, hold on to your guns here and, um, and, and do what needed to be done and stick, stick to his guns, I guess is the metaphor I should be using. But, um, Wow. And wouldn't it have been great if this was the final of the final five? Like, yeah. this is what you want to see. Like, I, I, nothing can, although I'm looking forward to lowers and I think it will be exciting. But to have it at Chopu, to have Gabe and Jack Robinson, you know, this is what you want. This is how you would want to end the season. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, we'll see. You know, like, uh, it's interesting what we're going to be seeing here at lowers. Well, couple more thoughts about the event. Um, in the final, if you were watching it, do you remember the wave? Gabriel Medina was staying busy. It was among of it, among his scores that actually didn't go into his final two. But he got barreled, came out and did an alley-oop and then landed on the top of the wave and rode out the back instead of riding down the face. Yeah. And the commentators, Felicity Palmatier and I think Joe Turpel, even said, oh my God, that was a sick air anybody else would have landed that and then been thrilled and claimed it. But Gabe is just so good that he didn't even, he didn't care. Right. Interestingly, I think that if he would have rode out of it would have won the heat for him because he, at the end of the heat, he needed a difference of 1.67. And the, that wave was that much less than his wave that went into his final scores. And so if you could argue that that air riding out of it would have been two points or 1.68 points, it would have replaced his low score and that would have that would have get, put him in the first position at the end of the heat. Yeah, that was an interesting wave. I do remember seeing that and I do remember saying, thinking the exact same thing as you. Like, why didn't he just kind of finish it through? Now, I'm sure it was dry right there at the bottom. But yeah, I'm sure he could have just grinded his fins or whatever. I, I agree with you. I'm sure there was eight inches of water there. And, um, and by the way, how smoothly he did that. Like, it I wasn't know. like he was trying, like he just, he just did it as like, this is what you do in this section. Like it would have, it had all of the aesthetic and all of the technique to get him those two extra points. It wasn't like some telegraphed, I'm going to try this at the end and hope to scoop no. points out of this. This was just like, this is what I do. And it was a six section too. You know, it wasn't just like a throwaway thing. Right. So that was a technical error in my mind because he didn't th he thought he didn't need the score he was out in front he was just putting scores on the board one after another after another and this was just one more and i thought he he was like oh i still got 15 minutes left and i don't need it i'm way out in the lead so i'm just going to ride out the back of this but it in hindsight yeah. became a technical error yeah. because jack would have needed to better his second ride by that much more and he and wouldn't have and frankly uh, as as end user consumers and as professionals wearing the jersey in the water, that needs to happen. Those guys need to start doing airs at the end of the Chopu section. Like we, that's what we're talking about at Pipeline. You know, like that's yeah. why the format of Pipeline was like, hey, we're changing the Pipeline Masters this year. To, and that's that's that kind of needs to happen. Like I want to see you come out of an eight and then bust an aerial, and we'll give you a nine point seven. You know, watching that heat, watching the entire event, I think Gabe is the best surfer I've ever seen at Chopu. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm a big fan of his surfing, and I'm disappointed he's not in the final five. Okay, so here's another interesting detail. Yeah. A listener DM'd me this week, and he goes, hey, go listen to the recent episode of a podcast called The Dust Up. So I'm like, I look at the podcast, and I recognize the names of the guys who host it, 
because uh, they've been listeners of our show and I've DM'd with them and stuff. But one of the guys identifies that all the way up until um, the mid-year cut was introduced last year, there was 10 events in a season and you throw away two scores or throw away your two lowest scores, right? And your other scores go into your total at the end of the year. Since they introduced the cut, you throw away one score, but it can't be from after the cut. The, th- the throwaway sc- event has to be from before the cut. And, uh, but we didn't know that. I mean, that was a rule that was implemented that nobody really paid attention to. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, Gabe's lowest score was after the cut. Gabe's lowest placing of the season was in Brazil. Right. And so they made Gabe lose uh, an event from both. Yeah, exactly. He lost about a thousand points. Exactly. The difference for Gabe was, um, let me see, I have it written down somewhere. It was a thousand points. He would have had 44,000 and he He would have have been been better than Jack Robinson. Yeah. Gabe, basically, if Gabe could have thrown away his Brazil event. Yeah. He, instead of the event that he threw away before the cut, he would have finished fourth in the world. Fourth in the world. Yeah, exactly. And so this rule has never harshed anybody before. Like if you kind of just apply it to last year's final five and all that sort of, and this year's in the men and the women's side, everybody's only benefited from this rule. This is the only instance where somebody's actually been harshed by the rule. So by Gabe having to throw away a bigger event and a bigger score early in the season, He's relegated to sixth place. Well, I'm okay with the rule, actually. I, th- I think, look, we're, we're in the back half of the season. It's, you better put on your big boy pants and put out a result. And if you don't, you're going to, you know, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah, it's interesting, though. And it's, he's, it is interesting. He's been harshed by it. Yeah. And the Dust Up podcast. So that should be noted to listeners if you're looking for more surf content. I've never listened to it, no. but I'm sure it's good. Well, or maybe it's not. I'm sure, but give it a try, is all I'm saying. Here's the other interesting thing is, Ethan Ewing broke his back two vertebrae yeah. at Chopu in a warm up for the event. Why hasn't first of all, uh, you would think that Gabe would get that spot. Instead, what the WSL is doing is they're only going to run the top four men at Trestles, and Ethan's spot will be vacant. Why wouldn't they just allow Gabriel into the event, being in the sixth spot? I mean, I don't know the reasoning, but I'm just going to assume that it's like, look, you qualify uh, or you don't. And um, we're not going to be we're not going to set a precedent where injuries, um, you know, this is just we're they just decided to do it this way. I I don't know if there's it doesn't it doesn't serve anybody. You know what I mean? I mean, like maybe it's Ethan Ewing's ranking, like Ethan earned spot number three and next year he needs to start at spot number three. So he you know, the, the injury isn't his fault here and that. But they could still let Gabe surf in the event because it serves everybody. It serves the audience. It serves the WSL. It serves Gabe. Yeah. Serves yeah. Ev- and then whatever the case, whatever Gabe, wherever Gabe finishes, Ethan still gets third spot next year. Right. Like he's committed to his ranking, but we still want to see five people surf it off in this event. Well, especially I mean? Gabe. There's no doubt I, that totally. if Gabe's in the final five, he's a favorite, even as the number five guy. You know. Well, like, well, Felipe at lowers has proven to be the favorite. Well, yeah, no, I take that back. You're right. But my point is, is that if we're looking for excitement, put Gabe in the friggin' contest, you know, come on. Exactly. We are looking for excitement. You are looking to stoke the fans base and all that sort of stuff. So it's just a bizarre choice that I don't understand. And then the other question is, why has the WSL not acknowledged Ethan Ewing's broken back? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe legal, legally, they're like, look, let's just tread lightly here. Um, there's HIPAA stuff. I don't know. I, you know, who knows? I, I really don't have an answer for that. But you would they think that they would have injury. They haven't even acknowledged it as an injury. They are still putting his. I mean, after he broke his back, when the Chopu events running, they're Instagramming out. Ethan Ewing locked in his third place spot <laughs> with was- no acknowledgement. And in today they posted another Instagram showing the line, uh, the uh, matchups at lowers, and they're showing he's matched up against, you know, the winner of the first heat between yeah. fourth and fifth. And it's like, I mean, maybe he hasn't officially withdrawn yet. 
Yeah, I don't know. That's that's that could be it, right? They're like, hey, you know, maybe he's maybe there's a comeback in him here. I don't know how bad the injury is, but it's just it. I can't. This would never happen in the NBA, in the NFL, in anything else. I mean, if you see somebody get concussed on the field, whether they're warming up or not, that becomes the news topic and everybody discusses it, you know, because it's relevant. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. An injury is a huge thing that should be discussed. And, and the the way that it plays out, if it's, hey, he might come back or he's definitely out, like that all should be a part of the conversation that, that's not taking place here. But let me ask you this. What if we implement the David Lee scales rule um, where if you are leading the WSL rankings by more than 10,000 points, um, you know, you can only be um have one of the top five guys compete against you if in fact he could have overtaken you in other words if he's within 10,000 points of striking yeah. distance and if that's the case it's just Felipe and Griffin the other yeah. three guys aren't even in the conversation there's no way if Jao would have won Tahiti he would have overtaken Felipe and so um yes. would this be better David for 30-minute heats between Felipe and Griffin on finals day. As yes. an end user, like a radical boxing match where you have four rounds or a UFC fight where there's four rounds of 30 minutes, I think that would be better. I four 30-minute heats of just what? Felipe versus Griffin. It would be fun. You know well, what I mean? Like th we would... 330, 3.30 is fine, too. 3.30 yeah. minutes. Okay, whatever, but too. you get the point. But you're, you're right, and we talked about this last year is it doesn't need to be a final five. It could be a final three or a final 10, as long as those people earned a mathematical shot at the at the title. Yeah. That's exactly. what it needs to be. Exactly. And so the scenario that you just painted was allowing them to implement the arbitrary five that they've already picked for some reason. So if there is a final five on finals day, the only, only the people who have a mathematical shot at the title, basically they're within 10,000 points of one another, because that's what an event is worth, then they're the ones who get to vie for the actual title. If three, if four and five don't have a mathematical shot, then they get to vie for fourth and fifth place. But the title bout is people who earned a shot at it. It's asinine to think that somebody who came in in fifth and they're more than one event away would then walk away with the title. Yeah, especially when you look at Felipe's, his line of, you know, and I'll look at it real quick, but he's got a pretty incredible line of, um, you know, he won the second event. You know, he got uh, third, fifth, third, another victory, a ninth, then another victory. You know, he's got a pretty solid line here. This guy, Philippe yeah. Toledo. Yep. Well, on the women's side... I want to at least acknowledge um, Caitlin Simmers to me was a highlight standout of the event. She finished second and I felt that way about Gabriel as well. Gabe finished second, but it's his performance that I remember over Jack Robinson's and Caitlin Simmers lost in the final two Caroline Marks, but Caitlin Simmers throughout the event was somebody who I could see progressing throughout the event, admitting her fear and her shortcomings in her post-heat interviews and then going out in the next heat and trying harder and doing better than she did in the previous heat. And watching that progression is really interesting to watch. It's fun to watch. Yeah, she's so young that you sense that she could be one that breaks some records if you know she continues on this career path. And, um, and frankly, she could win at lowers. I, I want to say I heard the guys on the WSL, I think it was Peter Mel and Kaipo, mentioned that of these five women, Carissa's the only one that's been at finals day. Does that make sense to you? Taylor Wright has never been in finals day? Tyler? Um, Tyler, excuse me. <laughs> Taylor, <laughs> Tyler Wright, would... Carolyn Marks, Molly Picklum, Caitlin Simmers. Is Carissa Moore the only one? She may be. I mean, if they said that, then that must be. I have a hard time imagining that Tyler wasn't, but maybe she was just injured. I know she yeah. came off injury fairly recently and they've only been doing finals day for a couple of years. So maybe that's reflected in that. But I think yeah. it's interesting because they're all lower surfers, you know, like 
Caroline Marks shreds at lowers. Molly, I haven't seen her there, but she her style suits lowers. And then Caitlin, like you said, she's that's her bread and butter. Yeah, I'm sort of hoping Caitlin comes from behind as the fifth as the fifth placer and and wins the event. I think that would be pretty cool. Well, the other storyline that was um, kind of overlooked was Stephanie Gilmore didn't even put up a fight. Like Stephanie Gilmore was in contention for lowers for finals day uh, at the Chopu event. And I forget if she drew Caitlin or Molly, but she left that heat with like a two something point total. Like she, and in the heat, she looked like nonplussed, just not interested. Like, eh, I'm just here cruising. And it's like, no, there's a title on the line. If you make it through this heat, you know, and she just didn't seem to care. Interestingly. Yeah. Well, she's had a long career. Maybe she's just feeling like this is it, you know, next year I'll just do a victory lap with everybody. And, and, uh, on to different part chapter, maybe. I'd, I don't know. I'd be I'd be okay with that, and I think I've seen that from her in the past. But then when she needs to light up, like on finals day, she came from fifth spot last year. Yeah, she lit up when she needed it. You know, so I expect her to be kind of hot and cold throughout the season. But when it matters, lighting it up, and that was a moment where it mattered, and she didn't seem to turn it on. So you might be right transition into retirement speaking of which uh kelly slater lost in this event pretty early is kelly slater done is that the last time we see kelly surfing an event um no there's no way he's going to be at pipe yeah maybe in the pipeline event isn't there a way that he can still make it to the olympics can you explain that to me because i mentioned this on the air and somebody sent me a DM going, what are you talking about? There's no way he can beat Griffin and John John Florence and the USA team or whatever. And so hold that thought, hold that thought. Okay. And Scott, let's give some love to realwatersports.com. I forwarded you an email that we got from a listener yesterday uh, praising Real Water Sports customer service. They bought a LibTech, something from LibTech. It might've been a Mayhem um, and they needed it on a certain date for a surf trip. It was like coming up that Friday, I think it was. And uh, they got a smoking deal on the board and it showed up on time even. That's cool. Do your last minute surf trip shopping at Real Water Sports and be guaranteed to get it shipped out and at your door in time for your trip. And of course, speaking of trip and Jason and Matt and all the good folks that work at Real Water Sports, insane customer service. Like these people, um, that's sort of that Southern hospitality just drips down to the way that they do business with people. And it's real heartfelt and super cool. And of course, David and I are huge fans. Can't say enough really wonderful, positive things about Real Water Sports. And frankly, I look forward to going back there. I'm um, excited to go back and visit uh, the Outer Banks. I know, me too. And surf, shipping surfboards has been a you know a little bit of a barrier for purchasing from somewhere other than your local for a long time. But Real seems to have unlocked that because, like I said last, or a listener called in last week and he bought a used board for 150 bucks, and he said it was shipped to him on the West Coast for 45 bucks, and it came with a fin and a bag. So 200 bucks, under 200 bucks, and you're you've got the board of fin in a bag. So smoking deals on the used board stuff. They do sales all of the time. They have 1500 boards in inventory. So consider them, keep them front of mind for whenever you're looking for something either new or used, um, realwatersports.com. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The question was, is there still a way for Kelly Slaters to make the USA Olympic team? Yes. So the listener who DM'd you was technically right, but what they're overlooking is that both the Olympic Committee and – or not the Olympic Committee, but whoever figures out the rules for surfers to qualify are still able to rewrite the rules to allow for the Kelly to get in. And the that other would be the right? ISA, the ISA would be the governing body for USA. Or wait, no, the ISA is the governing body for international surfing, and then the U.S. team, which would be USA Surfing, would be the governing body that determines which USA surfers are on the team. Okay, I think. Well, I'll tell you where to go listen because they admitted it openly. Uh, surf stories podcast by the Florida surf film festival did an episode with those exact people, uh, Jessica and Jay Johnson, who, uh, hold on. People hold Kelly Slater's fate in their hands. Yeah. They're, they're co-directors, co-producers. Um, they, I don't have their full bio here, but they do, um, dictate those rules that we're talking about to get surfers in for the ISA. Please enjoy our discussion with the team behind the ISA's successes and challenges to produce live broadcasting for these wonderful events. Anyways, the impossible wave with Jessica and Jay Johnson on the surf stories podcast in being interviewed on there, they, the host Kevin Miller and um, John Brooks ask them about Kelly's access. And they say what it currently is, what the rules have been up until this point, but then admit you know, everybody wants to see Kelly in the Olympics. And so we are trying to figure out a way essentially to allow him the best opportunity to get into the Olympics. And I mean, that says it all, right? And so <laughs> there and could so be a quote unquote, like a president's waiver or exactly. Or the, just, it's the Kelly, it, it's the Kelly caveat that the WSL also implemented to make sure that he could surf the back half of the season and accrue points for this exact purpose. To then be the Duke Kahanamoku waiver. Exactly. (laughs) And the other way that he could get in is that if USA wins gold at the ISA event in El Salvador or whoever wins gold gets a third. Yeah. The team team. gets a third entry into the Olympics. So if Brazil wins, they would likely add Gabriel Medina to the team because God knows Felipe Toledo ain't going to go at Chopu. And, get, oh and win, them, and win them the, the heavy lumber. <laughs> and then if USA wins, it would make sense that they would invite, you know, yeah. uh, Kelly as a third person. Well, gosh, it'd be cool if both Gabe and Kelly were in. Like, we need two Dukanamoku waivers, you know? Yeah. But anyway. So. Look, uh, um, lots are going on with the, the uh, boardroom show. Oh, yeah. It's coming up here October 7th and 8th. I've got a special announcement that will occur on the next Spit podcast, but we've got a surprise guest coming up. Um, of course, there's going to be smoking hot deals by all the exhibitors. This is a place to get your surfboard, your wetsuit, your fins, your gear, anything like that. Um, the Icons of Foam Shaping Contest honoring Bing Copeland this year, and it's featuring Australian Thomas Bexon from Thomas Surfboards, Wayne Rich. Two-time champion Wayne Rich, two-time champion Roger Hines, legendary San Diego shaper Hank Warner, Josh Peterson from the East Coast and from Hawaii, Dane Purley from San Diego, Michael Arenal, um, and defending champion Rick Rock. So those guys are going to be competing for $2,000. 
and um, their name on the Mike Marshall Perpetual Trophy. Best in show, the board build-off, David, is the category is Bonzer, and both Malcolm and Duncan Campbell, the Bonzer brothers, are going to be there judging the best in show board build-off. War and Peace, which is a Kelly Slater and Andy Irons talk story photo exhibition by Steve Sherman. That's going to take place. The Boardroom Talks, discussions featuring Bing Copeland and friends. Jimmy Medico and Jamie Brissick are going to be discussing the early years of Al Merrick and Tom Curran and surfboard design. Ricardo Rossi and Vince Longo are going to be discussing fin design. And we're going to have foil surfing experts, David, from Armstrong and Unifoil, breaking down the barriers of foil surfing. Live music featuring the Juvenile Seagulls, Five Point, and other bands to be announced shortly. The Longboard Collectors Club is going to have a meet at the boardroom show. And we're going to have, David, uh, interestingly, a a used surfboard super sale on Saturday from 10 to 2. There's going to be a used surfboard super sale that you're not going to want to miss. Plus much more, of course, again, great deals on boards and uh, tickets are now on sale amazing i will be there i cannot wait in addition to everybody who's confirmed and actually participating everybody else shows up too so i mean i'm just going to throw out some names of icons that i have seen there in past years dick brewer ben ipa tom curran jerry lopez uh all the local pros i mean rob machado everybody kind of from around here but people fly in for the event as well so who else i mean the list goes on and on and on and on so um come and hang shrub shoulders with a who's who of the surf world yeah no for sure it's going to be a fun event looking for Tom current on roller skates even <laughs> that's it it was amazing. I mean, it's the best way to get around. I don't know if I'd recommend it. It probably creates a liability for you, but he gets a free pass. Yeah, Kern gets a free pass with however he shows up. Exactly right. Well, look, the water has dipped down here because of Hillary. The water's chilly, 60, 62 degrees from um, all the rain runoff. I think the inland watershed is, is a little chillier and it's flowed into the ocean. It's cold. It's a little dirty. Plus, the wind um, helps with upwelling. The buoys, the outer buoys are still warm. Like, if you look at the buoy water temperatures, they're 68 degrees. It's just this localized um, upwelling that's probably going to, things are going to warm back up here shortly, I hope. But uh, yeah. of note here in Southern California, water's still chilly. Went, went chilly. It got warm. Went chilly. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, before we sign off, I'll just give some love. Uh, everybody knows petroleum-free surf wax is the way to go, and trees wax is the way to do it. You can get it at treeswax.com. They'll also be at the boardroom show um, if you want to check them out there, probably giving out free samples even. And then a couple of surf shops that'll point to if you don't want to get it on treeswax.com. Get it from Cayucos Collective, Surf Country Goleta, or 15th Street in Newport. Yeah, Tristan. Uh, Christian, and again, I think you mentioned you can you can meet Christian at the boardroom show too as well. Yeah, and get your trees yeah, exactly. waxed. Cool, man. All right. Well, look, David, uh, great show. Until next time, adios and aloha. Of ancient history. 